to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Ilya Soman, Professor of Law at George Mason University Antonin Scalia Law School. We will discuss his new book, Free to Move, Foot Voting, Migration, and Political Freedom, which is published by Oxford University Press. So welcome to the show, Ilya. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you back on, um, and I'm really looking forward to talking about this timely, provocative, and important book. So thanks for sending me a copy, and um, and welcome. Thank you. Uh, I look forward to the discussion. Well, so for listeners who might not be familiar with the concept of of foot voting, I wonder if you could just briefly explain what you mean by foot voting and how foot voting is different or how it relates to more um, more traditional forms of voting, like voting at the ballot box. Sure. Traditionally, most people think of voting at the ballot box as the main way they express political choice. And in that scenario, their vote is usually just one of many thousands or many millions. By contrast, voting with your feet is a situation where you can decide what government policies you want to live under uh, in a framework where you can make a decisive decision as an individual or sometimes in a small group. Uh, And in the book, I talk about three different types of voting with your feet. One is deciding where you want to live in a federal system, uh, what state or local government you want to choose, often based on what policies they have. Second is voting with your feet through international migration, uh, which is moving from one country to another. Again, such moves are often heavily influenced by the different policies of those countries' governments. And finally, there is voting with your feet in the private sector. Often private sector organizations, such as private planned communities, offer goods and services uh, that are similar to those that are traditionally offered by governments. And so private sector foot voting is also an option and uh, in many cases for people to uh, exercise political choice. Well, let's let's start by thinking about foot voting in a domestic context. So can you give an example of like a familiar scenario that you would describe as foot voting that people might not necessarily otherwise kind of initially understand in that way? And talk about why someone would make the kind of decision to exercise a choice via foot voting rather than, say, via the ballot box. Sure. There are many historical examples and also contemporary examples of voting with your feet in a domestic context. Uh, One that's going on extensively in recent years is that more and more people are moving from states that have relatively high taxes and relatively few employment opportunities and also uh, more expensive housing to places where housing is cheaper, taxes are lower, uh, and job opportunities are better. Uh, Each of these things, even if the decision is not consciously made on the base of government policy, each of these is actually heavily influenced by government policy. Certainly employment is, uh, housing costs, and so on. And of course, there are many examples, both contemporary and historical, where people explicitly in their own minds make decisions about where to live based on the policies of the government. Uh, A very famous example is the great migration of African-Americans from southern states to the north, where, of course, they were moving in large part because of oppressive Jim Crow policies in the South, whereas northern states, though far from free of racism, at least didn't have the same degree of institutionalized oppression 
as Southern states did in more recent years. We often saw a case of gays and lesbians moving to jurisdictions where uh, government policy was more tolerant of them. Uh, and of course, there are lots of other examples that can be cited. Why would people do this? Well, the principal reason, of course, is that conditions are often better, especially from the point of view of those moving. They're often better in the areas they're moving to than the areas that they're leaving behind. And uh, foot voting, unlike ballot box voting, allows you to make a decision without persuading thousands or millions of other people to vote for the same policies or candidates as you have. Uh, it can empower you, including in situations where uh, otherwise you have very little or no political influence. Well, so in the book, you sort of talk about ballot box voting and foot voting in relation to the degree of someone's voice and the personal consequences that their choices are going to have on their own personal circumstances. Maybe you could just kind of highlight the differences between ballot box voting and foot voting in relation to those kind of really salient questions uh, in relation to individuals. Sure. Uh, there are two big differences between ballot box voting and foot voting that play a big role in the book. Uh, one is that when you vote at the ballot box, there's only a tiny chance that your decision will actually make a difference to the outcome. So in a presidential election, you only have about a one in 60 million chance uh, of making a decisive difference in terms of who wins. If you live in a swing state, the chances are somewhat better, but they're still very well, maybe one in one million or something like that. The odds may be higher in local or state elections, but they're still very low. Uh, so uh, if given how low a chance you have of making a difference, it doesn't seem like ballot box voting creates very much in the way of meaningful political freedom. Uh, we wouldn't say, for example, that you have meaningful religious freedom if you have only a one in one million chance of being able to decide what religion you're going to practice. Similarly, we wouldn't say you have meaningful freedom of speech if you have only a one in one million chance of deciding what opinions you get to express. And I would suggest that if you have only a one in one million chance of having an impact on what government policies you live under, uh, then it turns out that you don't have much in the way of meaningful political freedom. Uh, and this lack of a meaningful chance of making a difference also points to the other problem uh, with ballot box voting, which is the problem of political ignorance. Given the very low likelihood of your vote making a difference, uh, it also doesn't pay to spend much time and effort learning about the issues at stake in elections. Uh, and indeed, that's exactly what most voters do. Uh, they know very little about the policies and issues at stake or even about the basic structure of government. Often, for example, survey data shows that only about a third of Americans can even name the three branches of the federal government the executive, the legislative, and the judicial. They also often don't know such basic things as how the federal government spends its money uh, or which officials are responsible for which issues. By contrast, when you vote with your feet, that's a decision that really makes a difference. If you're like most people, you probably spend more time and effort seeking out relevant information and considering it when you decided what TV to buy or what smartphone to get than when you decided who to vote for for president or any other political office. That's not because your TV set is more complicated than the issues the government deals with or that it's more important. It's that you knew that the decision about the TV set would actually make a difference. The set that you buy will be the one probably that will actually be in your living room. But when you turn it on and you have the misfortune to see the president or some other politician, uh, your chances of affecting 
selecting who that person will be are infinitesimally small. So you, you generally devote a lot less time and effort to learning about it. Uh, so the case for foot voting comes down to the fact that uh, you have more of a chance of making a difference to the outcome. And for that reason, your decision tends to be better informed. Well, so you talk about foot voting in relation to federalism. Why do you think that they're related? And it almost seems like in the book, sort of like necessary complements to each other. I'm not saying that you can't have a federal system with no foot voting at all. Uh, you probably could. And indeed, you can argue something like that existed during the Middle Ages when uh, in the era of feudalism, when you had a lot of decentralization of political power, uh, but also very little mobility. However, the opportunity to vote with your feet makes federalism a lot better and a lot more valuable than it might be otherwise, because if you have a federal system where power is divided between uh, many different states and many different local governments, that creates a lot of options for foot voters. Uh, they can find jurisdictions where uh, the policies there fit their needs and preferences. In addition, it creates better incentives, at least in many cases, uh, for the political leaders of those jurisdictions. They have to try to make policies that attract foot voters in order to increase their tax base, or at least policies that don't alienate too many people so that a lot leave. If they adopt really bad policies and are consistently badly flawed or corrupt or the like, then they tend to lose population, as, for instance, happened with the city of Detroit which was badly misgoverned for many years. Uh, but in the 1950s, it was one of the four or five largest cities in the U.S. by population. Today, I can't remember the exact figure, but it's something like 60th or something like that because they lost population over time. Uh, and there are uh, other examples like this as well. So essentially, it encourages locations or federalism in relation to foot voting, encourages jurisdictions to compete for quote-unquote foot voters, as it were? It does encourage them, at least in many cases. But even if there was no competition as such, and you just had variation in policy between regions for other reasons, uh, still that creates important benefits because it still creates options for foot voters. But I think competition, where it can be fostered, can make the system work even better because there not only are there options, but political leaders will have incentives to make those options better than they otherwise would be. And in the book, I talk about various strategies for enhancing competitive pressure uh, and thereby uh, making this dynamic work better than it might otherwise. Would you, do you want to talk a little bit about some of those you know, potential ways that you might increase the efficientness and effect effectiveness of, of foot voting? Sure. There are several big ones. I'll just mention a couple of the most important. One is to try for the most part to ensure that regional and local governments have to raise all or most of their money from uh, the tax revenue from their own residents. That creates incentives for them to compete for residents uh, and adopt policies which will be attractive to people, as opposed to a situation where they get all or most of their money from the central government and therefore have much less incentive to compete. I should add that this is compatible with having some degree, maybe even a high degree, of centralized redistribution uh, to the poor uh, managed by the central government. Just don't give money or don't give very much money to state and local governments. Give it directly to the 
poor people themselves if that is what needs to be done. Uh, another reform that can enhance competition and also make foot voting easier is decentralization to lower levels of government. Uh, it's often cheaper and easier to move from one town to another, at least one town in the same region, than it is to move to another state. Uh, and that enhances competition and also reduces moving costs and makes foot voting available to a wider range of people. Uh, finally, in Chapter 7 of the book, I discuss how uh, stronger protection for a range of constitutional individual rights can also enhance foot voting opportunities in various ways, particularly foot voting in the private sector. And perhaps if you're interested, we can talk about that in more detail later in the interview or people can look it up in the book. For sure. Well, in relation to the second example that you gave, and I hope this isn't kind of straining the analogy too much, but in the context of ballot box voting, we're generally really concerned about ballot access and making sure that everyone has the right to vote, or at least as many people as possible have the right to vote. Should we be concerned about that in the context of foot voting? And does everyone have access to kind of quote unquote voting in that way? We should be concerned. And in the book, I outline a wide range of ways to break down barriers to effective foot voting, uh, both domestic and international, such as uh, restrictions on international migration, which are huge barriers to foot voting domestically. Things like uh, restrictive zoning, which prevents the construction of new housing in many areas that would otherwise be attractive to foot voters. And also licensing, which makes it difficult for many people to move to places where they would otherwise be able to practice their profession uh, more effectively and serve people better. Uh, but the claim that is sometimes made that foot voting only works for the wealthy or others who have money uh, and resources to move, uh, that claim, I think, is wrong. It is actually the opposite of the truth. In reality, historically, the biggest beneficiaries of foot voting have been the poor and the oppressed, the many millions of immigrants who moved to America and Canada and Australia, escaping oppression elsewhere, the people who settled the West, many of whom were poor in the East, uh, African-Americans in the Great Migration who uh, fled Jim Crow oppression and so on. Uh, and there are many steps that we can take to make foot voting more accessible to more people today. Uh, I would add that with ballot box voting, you have this problem. Yes, you can, in a superficial way, it might seem it's easily available to everybody. But to the extent that it's easily available to everybody, it's also only available in a format where the individual voter is almost completely powerless to affect the policies that they actually live under and has strong incentives to make poorly informed decisions. Uh, there are, of course, other ways that you can uh, try to influence public policy, like lobbying, uh, campaign contributions, various forms of political activism and so forth. But those are severely unequally distributed. Only about 25 percent of Americans even engage in any of those forms of political participation at all. Uh, and if you did somehow equalize them, then you would be right back into the same situation as you are with uh, voting at the ballot box, which is that each person's power may be equal in some sense, but only at the price of each person being almost completely powerless. Uh, on the other hand, with foot voting, you can make it available to a very wide range of people, including the poor and disadvantaged. And yet it is a form of decision making uh, where an individual, including a poor and disadvantaged one, can have real influence and have a real chance of determining their fate and controlling the policies they live under. Well, so I thought one of the really provocative 
sections in the book, well, there are many, but one particular that stuck out for me was your discussion of what you refer to as private foot voting, which you kind of define as people entering into voluntary quasi-governmental relationships with each other, things like homeowners associations, right? So I, I don't in, initially sort of associate things like homeowners associations with freedom and choice. So can you tell me why I'm wrong? Sure. Uh, there are lots of private planned communities in the U.S., including homeowners associations, condominiums, and many others. Almost 70 million Americans already live under such organizations. So it's not the case that it's only something that the wealthy can do or that, as Robert Reich famously said, that it's the secession of the successful, the wealthy somehow walling themselves off for everybody else. Uh, and uh, the reason why these are linked to freedom and choice is because there's a lot of them and they create a lot of potential options and opportunities for people who uh, want a particular type of neighborhood, a particular type of framework they want to live under and so forth, uh, because these types of organizations uh, can exist in many places. And there's a lot of them. There can potentially be many more of them in a given geographic area than local governments, and therefore a wider range of choices available. And in addition, a lot of data suggests that often the services they provide are better quality uh, and at lower cost than similar services provided by regional or uh, local governments. Uh, certainly, uh, they often provide better amenities. Uh, their security guards often provide better protection than public police. And I should note, in light of recent events, there are very few cases of private security guards beating up innocent people, uh, choking them and so forth, whereas tragically with public police, such things happen uh, on a seemingly regular basis, as we've seen recently. Uh, so it is true that even now, these types of organizations are not fully available to everybody. Uh, in the book, I outline various ways to make it possible to make them available to more people, including relaxing zoning restrictions uh, that prevent uh, the construction, the organization of these facilities in more places. And I should add that private plan communities are just one example of private sector foot voting. There are others, for example, Private schooling uh, can be uh, an example of, pri of private sector foot voting. Many organizations that provide goods and services that are traditionally associated with state, regional and local governments are also examples. I don't claim that the private sector can fully displace all functions of regional or local government, but there's much that we can do to give greater scope to this type of foot voting and make it available to more people. Well, so when I was reading that chapter, you know, I got the impression that the kind of private foot voting you describe, I think, is sort of colloquially associated with a more kind of small C conservative approach to thinking about interpersonal relationships among individuals. But I wonder whether something like a, a cooperative or a collective or a commune, I mean, would you just describe the choice to join a organization like that as also being a kind of private foot voting? Sure. Uh, I think uh, deciding to join an organization with a very communal or collectivist ethos uh, is entirely consistent uh, with my position. Uh, if you want to move to a monastery or a commune or a kibbutz or something like that, that opportunity should be available to you. And the sort of framework of decentralization that I advocate, uh, in fact, makes that entirely possible. As a matter of 
empirical evidence, it seems like only a small minority of people given the choice actually prefer highly communitarian uh, small communities like this, uh, even in Israel, where the kibbutz was strongly supported and encouraged by the government for many years. Only a small percentage of the population actually chose to live uh, in such settlements. Uh, but those who do prefer such organizations and who find it works well for them, uh, I have no problem with that. Indeed, I, I support it. Uh, we live in a world where there are many diverse people with different kinds of preferences uh, and what might not work well for you or me uh, will work well and will be well suited to the preferences of uh, some other people. Uh, and that's true for uh, certain types of very communal living, uh, just as at the opposite end of the spectrum, uh, it can be true for uh, a more individualistic setup where perhaps there are very few rules. Well, so a, a significant part of your book uh, focuses primarily on immigration, thinking about immigration as a form of foot voting. Why do you think that's a useful way, a helpful way of thinking about and framing the debate over immigration? Uh, for a couple reasons. One is that is, in fact, what most immigration, both historically and today, actually is. It is people leaving places with awful government policies and lack of opportunity, often also severe oppression, and moving to places where there is greater opportunity uh, and also greater freedom uh, and often freedom from oppression as well. Uh, we sometimes uh, like to think of sort of economic migrants as opposed to refugees or political ones, but really even most so-called economic migrants uh, are in fact heavily influenced by political factors. What makes these people poor in their home countries in most cases is the horrible policies pursued by those home countries' governments, which are often oppressive, corrupt, uh, and don't provide much in the way of meaningful opportunity to escape poverty, no matter how hardworking uh, or how smart you might be. Uh, secondly, uh, I think it's important to recognize that for many millions of people around the world, the opportunity to vote with your feet through international migration is in fact by far their best and often their only opportunity to exercise any kind of political choice at all. About one third of the world's population lives in countries which are undemocratic. So they don't even have the one in a million chance of influencing policy through the ballot box that I mentioned earlier. Another one third live in countries which Freedom House classifies as partly democratic, where there is an electoral process, but it has severe flaws and how much accountability it really imposes on government is severely questionable. Uh, so given the fact that most migration really is an example of foot voting, and for many millions of the world's people, it's actually the only way, the only realistic way for them to exercise any kind of political choice at all, I think it makes perfect sense to describe this as, as, as a form of voting with your feet. And I should note that I'm obviously not the first person to recognize this fact. Uh, the contribution of my book is not in you know, reviewing this point for the first time somehow, but rather in trying to put it together with a more generally integrated theory of foot voting that also encompasses voting with your feet in a domestic sphere as well. Well, so I can see how foot voting in this context is good for the individual immigrant in the same way that I can understand that in the way you've talked about foot voting in a domestic context. Is it good for everyone though? I mean, or is it, is, are the benefits concentrated in the person making the choice that's best for themselves? And should we be worried about sort of what the net effects are? 
no large scale uh, social process is going to benefit every single person. Uh, that's true across the board for almost anything. Uh, and no form of freedom will benefit every single person. Freedom of speech doesn't benefit every single person. Uh, freedom of religion doesn't benefit every single person uh, and so on. That said, the benefits of freedom of movement and foot voting, including across international boundaries, uh, they go far beyond the benefits to migrants themselves. Uh, one big benefit is that Economists estimate that if we had freedom of movement throughout the world, we would roughly double the gross domestic product of the world. That is, the world as a whole would be twice as wealthy, roughly speaking, as it currently is. Why? Because, as I mentioned earlier, many millions of people are trapped in places where because of horrible government policies, they cannot be productive and escape poverty. Whereas if many of them could move to places where there are better opportunities, uh, they would almost right away very quickly become much more productive. Uh, a Mexican or a Cuban or a Haitian who moves to the United States almost immediately can increase their income three or four fold because the opportunities are better. Uh, and that increased productivity benefits not only the migrants themselves, but also natives uh, and people throughout the world who may not uh, who, who may not move at all. A, a world which is that much richer than the one that we have today will almost inevitably uh, benefit huge numbers of people, uh, including many who do not move themselves. Uh, in the book, I do discuss a variety of arguments to the effect that migration might have various kinds of negative side effects. Uh, and you know, we can talk about those in more detail later. If you're interested, for instance, I go through arguments that it might overburden welfare states, that it might increase crime, uh, that it might have harmful political effects because migrants might vote for bad candidates who pursue bad policies. Uh, and with each of those arguments, I think many of them are overblown, i.e. the evidence doesn't really support them. In cases where there is some evidence supporting them, there are often ways to address the problem without actually excluding migrants. Uh, and I discuss those kinds of ways as well. And then finally, in cases where the problem is real and there isn't an easy solution for it other than excluding migrants, still, in many of those cases, you can also try to address the problem by tapping some of the vast wealth that is created by freer migration and using it to alleviate uh, potential negative side effects. Well, you also discussed some kind of more theoretical or kind of big picture objections to liberalizing immigration policy in the service of, of foot voting. And at least one subset of those seem to kind of focus on concepts of sovereignty or national or cultural self-determination. Why do you think those objections don't work? Sure. Uh, I mentioned just a moment ago that there are people who argue for restricting migration based on possible specific negative consequences. But obviously, there are also people who say that existing governments have a right to restrict migration for almost any reason they want. Uh, so, and there are two sets of those kinds of arguments that are usually offered. One is an argument which says that a given territory is owned by a particular ethnic or racial or cultural group and that members of that group have a right to exclude other people. Uh, so, for instance, uh, by this standard, France is for the French and the ethnically French people can exclude others. Germany is for the Germans, Japan for the Japanese and so on. Uh, a second kind of argument uh, is one that says that it's not a matter of race or culture or ethnicity, but rather it analogizes 
government to private homeowners or to members of a private club. So, for instance, a homeowner can say, I don't want certain people to enter my house, and they don't necessarily have to have a good reason for it. Uh, and similarly, members of a club can say, you know, the existing members of the club can keep out new members, again, even if they don't have any particularly good reason for doing so, it may be enough that they just don't like those those other people and don't want them to join. Say it's a club of baseball fans, so they don't want any football fans to join or any hockey fans, even though there's no particular reason to say uh, that baseball fans are better people than football fans or vice versa. Uh, in the book, I criticize both types of arguments in some detail, as well as a number of other arguments for right to exclude that are less popular, but that still show up in the academic literature on the subject. Uh, so let's just briefly talk about the uh, right to exclude on the basis of a, the rights of an ethnic or cultural group. And then I'll also briefly touch on the more individualistic argument by analogy to home ownership. When you talk about racial or ethnic groups and say that they have the right to exclude, uh, there are uh, several serious problems with that theory. One is if you look at the history of virtually every nation, it just isn't the case you can point to one ethnic group that at some point established an exclusive right to rule. Almost always there's a long history of actually multiple groups living in that area. That's true in France, Germany, China, Japan, almost every society you can think of. It is even more obviously true in the United States, of course, uh, where uh, the original ethnic group, if you want to call it that, the Native Americans is now only a tiny fraction uh, of the population. Uh, moreover, if you're arguing that a particular racial or ethnic or cultural group has a right to exclude, then what you're essentially arguing for is a policy of large-scale racial or ethnic discrimination. And in the, virtually every other sphere, liberal democratic societies reject that view. Uh, we reject the view that your race or your ethnicity or, or your culture should determine where you're allowed to live internally. We reject racial segregation. We reject the position that it should be allowed to determine uh, what jobs you're allowed to do. Uh, so I see little reason why international migration should be this great exception to this principle against uh, racial and ethnic discrimination uh, if uh, it's race and ethnicity and culture should not be allowed to determine your rights within a nation. I see no reason why they should be allowed to determine uh, where you're allowed to live uh, as between different nations. Uh, in both cases, uh, race, ethnicity, and other similar characteristics uh, are there things that you cannot control. Uh, it's essentially about what parents you chose to have, and uh, they're morally arbitrary because they don't say anything about whether you're a good person uh, or how much freedom you should have. Uh, Martin Luther King uh, famously said that uh, your rights should be determined by not by the color of your skin, but by the context of your character. Your race of birth should make no difference to your rights. I would suggest that place of birth is much the same. Uh, whether you're born south of the Rio Grande River or north of it says nothing about what kind of person you are. It says nothing about how many rights you should have. And it's obviously not something that you can control. Uh, so I'll pass on now, if, if we have a moment, to talk about the more individualistic theory, uh, which says that it's not really a matter of race or ethnicity or culture. Rather, it's a matter of uh, an analogy between the rights of governments and the rights of homeowners. Uh, so if a homeowner can exclude, then uh, maybe a government can exclude the same way. If you accept this analogy, it has dire implications, not just for migration, but also for natives as well. 
After all, the owner of a house can decide only political speech that I agree with will be permitted in this house uh, or the only religious faiths that can be practiced are those that I like. So, you know, if I'm a Muslim, I can say only Islam can be practiced in my house. And the same goes for the analogy to a private club. Uh, members of a private club can say this is a Christian club or a Muslim club uh, or a club only for Democrats or only for Republicans. And therefore, people who don't agree with that religion or don't agree with uh, that political party can be excluded from the club. Uh, so uh, a government whose powers are analogous to that of a homeowner or that of a private club uh, would have the right to engage in severe repression against the native population just as much as against immigrants. Uh, and I think that's as good a reason as any for saying that it is fallacious to try to uh, determine what powers government has by analogy to the rights of homeowners or club members. I would add also that when it comes to large private organizations uh, in a domestic sphere like large corporations, for example, uh, most governments actually impose anti-discrimination laws forbidding them to discriminate on the basis of such characteristics as race, ethnicity, religion, and so forth. Uh, and governments, if they're analogous to private sector at all, are more analogous to these large organizations than to individual homeowners or small private clubs. Now, of course, if you're a libertarian, and I am, then you might be skeptical of anti-discrimination laws like this. But if so, you should be even more skeptical of allowing government to determine uh, who you're allowed to associate with or who's allowed to live on your land. Ironically, these arguments, while appealing by analogy to property rights, ultimately end up undermining real property rights or real private rights because they forbid private homeowners and also private organizations from renting to immigrants, hiring immigrants, uh, associating with immigrants, including forming clubs that include them, uh, and so forth. So far from protecting private property, uh, these sorts of theories actually undermine it. Well, so in, in your book, you also discuss an alternative kind of objection to liberalizing immigration that sort of focuses on the obligation of the immigrant to their country of origin and suggests that it might be harmful to those countries to allow this kind of brain drain of of the kind of more capable immigrants to more attractive jurisdictions. And that rather than allow immigration, we should help people kind of where they are, as it were. Why do you think that's wrong? Uh, for a couple reasons, uh, actually, maybe even three big reasons. Uh, the first is that uh, I do not believe that the country where you're born or the people thereof somehow own a right to your labor. Uh, if you believe in the basic liberal idea that people own themselves and you oppose forced labor or slavery and other similar institutions, it also follows that uh, the government of your country does not own you. It doesn't own your labor. So even if that government or the people thereof could benefit from your labor, they can't force you to give it. They can't force you to stay. If you reject that view, it again has illiberal implications that uh, go well beyond immigration. For example, let's say that you're an engineer and the governor of your country says, you know, you can't leave because uh, we really need engineers. Well, what if the engineer says, you know what, I'm bored being an engineer. I don't like this career. I'd like to switch to being an artist. Uh, well, if what the government really needs to develop the nation is more engineers and they don't really need more artists, the same argument that justifies forbidding that person to leave would also justify 
forcing him to remain an engineer as opposed to becoming an artist or taking up some other job uh, that may have less value to the local economy. Uh, my second uh, point on this is a more practical one, which is that it is not actually the case that uh, emigration necessarily harms the sending country. Often it actually benefits it. And those benefits fall into two broad categories. One is remittances. Uh, when a country has a large diaspora of immigrants who have moved to wealthier and freer societies, often they send money to help their uh, relatives back home. And in countries like El Salvador, Honduras and others, remittances are actually a substantial proportion, 20 or 30 percent. Uh, of the total national income. Uh, so they greatly benefit the people back home. A second way in which having a diaspora creates a benefit is that, especially in the modern world, the people who leave communicate with their friends and relatives back home. And that makes those people more aware uh, that there is a possibility of having a freer, more liberal society. And it can promote uh, reforms in the sending country. Uh, I don't want to overstate this because the literature on this is not completely uniform and not completely clear, uh, but there is at least some evidence that these sorts of effects uh, benefit sending countries. And it's certainly the case, I think, that the example effect of freer societies did help stimulate uh, democratization uh, in Latin America. It arguably also helped stimulate various economic reforms in India and elsewhere. Uh, so that should be weighed as well. Uh, the final point that I would make on this, and this also applies to a wide range of other objections to migration, is that if you take it seriously, it doesn't only apply to international migration, it applies internally as well. So uh, if you live in a, if you're born into a poor community in West Virginia, why can't West Virginia force you to stay and work to develop that community as opposed to moving to another state? where there are more opportunities. Uh, if you think that uh, poor immigrants should be kept out because they might overburden the welfare state, then perhaps richer American states should be able to keep out internal migrants from poor ones for the same reason. Uh, and I can go through the list, and I do in fact go through the list of objections in the book. Almost all of these objections, which are traditionally offered as justifications for restricting international migration can also equally well justify restrictions on internal freedom of movement. Today, most people are not willing to bite that bullet, but if they're not, then that's a good reason for them to rethink their views on international migration, perhaps. Uh, and of course, historically, uh, we have had people both in the U.S. and elsewhere who were willing to restrict internal migration on these kinds of grounds, grounds of uh, protecting the rights of a particular racial or ethnic group to dominate their area, grounds related to welfare state, uh, and so on. Well, so Ilya, in, in closing, I have to observe that you know now is not necessarily a moment of kind of pending great liberalization in the international immigration sphere. And I wonder if you're worried about the future of foot voting in that context, what you see coming in the future and what we can do to ensure that some of the benefits that you describe to both individuals and to nations and to the world as a whole that might come from kind of liberalizing people's ability to choose where they live, uh, how we might encourage that. 
Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, the answer is sadly, I am pessimistic about the near term future. Periods of severe economic crises like the present do also tend to coincide with upsurges in nationalism and therefore with migration restrictions and also with the perception, even though the perception is false, but it's more common in periods like this, that there is a zero sum game, that more opportunities for migrants mean necessarily means less for natives uh, and vice versa. They also tend to lead to centralization of government power domestically, thereby making internal foot voting more difficult. Uh, what can we do to alleviate this? Uh, I don't think there's an easy answer, uh, but you know, one thing that is useful to, to point out is that this isn't the zero-sum game and that actually migration increases people's wealth and economic well-being and therefore can help us come out of the crisis further. I would add also that in the specific issue of spreading disease, while many governments, including, of course, the U.S., have adopted severe migration restrictions because of the coronavirus crisis, uh, particularly in the medium to long term, this is a bad idea. One reason why it's a bad idea is that uh, there are uh, much better and less draconian ways to restrict the spread of disease. For example, South Korea, instead of banning migration, has adopted the far more sensible policy of simply imposing a 14-day quarantine, uh, so a, a, enough time to make sure that the particular person isn't infected. Secondly, we know that all over the long run, uh, wealthier societies also have better public health uh, and are better able to prevent the spread of disease. And migration increases wealth uh, and therefore actually furthers the goal of combating disease. And I would add that in the U.S. and in many European nations, immigrants are disproportionately represented among medical workers and also among scientists and researchers, exactly the kinds of people we need both to curb the current pandemic and to uh, protect us against possible future ones. Uh, so if we restrict migration under the pretext of combating the spread of disease or of stopping the economic crisis, what we're really doing, particularly in the long run, is shooting ourselves in the foot. We're making more we're making future uh, health crises more likely and reducing our ability to fight them. And we're also uh, ensuring that uh, the recession or perhaps even depression uh, will be more prolonged. We also, by the way, end up with a system where we have more illegal migrants living in the shadows of society. And of course, such people are unlikely to be willing to cooperate with the authorities when it comes to such matters as testing for disease uh, and controlling its spread. Uh, whereas if people can migrate freely so long as they obey various kinds of public health restrictions, that makes it much easier to enforce those restrictions and much easier to en ensure the cooperation of both immigrants and others uh, with necessary public health measures. Ilya, thanks so much for coming on the show to talk about your new book, Free to Move, Foot Voting, Migration, and Political Freedom. Uh, I really enjoyed reading it and talking to you about it, but there were an awful lot more interesting observations and arguments in the book. So I hope listeners will, will check it out. Thank you very much for having me. Crystal fountain. So 
so come with me, we'll go and see the big rock candy mountain. In the big rock candy mountain, there's a land that's fair and bright, where the handouts grow on bushes, and you sleep out every night. Where the boxcars all are empty, and the sun shines every day. On the birds and the bees and the cigarette trees, the lemonade springs where the bluebird sings in the big rock candy mountains. In the big rock candy mountains, all the cops have wooden legs, and the bulldogs all have rubber teeth, and the hens lay soft boiled eggs. The farmer's trees are full of fruit, and the barns are full of hay. Oh, I'm bound to go where there ain't no snow, where the rain don't fall, the wind don't blow in the big rock candy mountains. In the big rock candy mountains, you never change your socks, and the little streams of alcohol come a-trickling down the rocks. The brakemen have to tip their hats, and the railroad bulls are blind. There's a lake of stew and a whiskey, too. You can paddle all around them in a big canoe in the big rock candy mountain. In the big rock candy mountains, the jails are made of tin. And you can walk right out again as soon as you are in. There ain't no short-handled shovels, no axes, saws, or picks. I'm a-goin' to stay where you sleep all day, where they hung the Turk that invented work in the big rock candy mountain. I'll see you all this coming fall in the big rock candy mountain.